Well, we will not get a decision from the Ohio Supreme Court on gerrymandering this week. They sent out a bunch of questions yesterday, and they gave everybody till Friday to answer. So don't look for answers from them until next week. It's Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with my regular panel of great conversationalists, Laura Johnston, Lisa Garvin, Layla Tassi. It's a Tuesday. I, for some reason, thought yesterday was Wednesday. <laughs> <laughs> Wouldn't that be nice? We shouldn't have corrected him, Laura. <laughs> Let's just get get to the weekend faster. <laughs> yeah, it's just Skip a, a lot of stuff going on and we got to get through it all. Let's get going. Did Cleveland Municipal Court Judge Pinky Carr run her courtroom like a game show? And how much trouble is she in? Laura, we've talked about Pinky Carr before, but it seems like the circle is closing in on her. She's not only not going to be a judge, she's very likely not to be a lawyer. Yeah, she could be disbarred for this. And it, the details in this 58-page review, scathing, just list of things she's done, it, it is unfathomable. Some of it would be funny if it weren't so disturbing, but this is from the Ohio Supreme Court's Board of Professional Conduct, and they called Carr's behavior an unprecedented amount of misconduct. Here's a quote. She ruled her courtroom in a reckless and cavalier manner, unrestrained by the law or the court's rules, and without any measure of probity or even common courtesy. Her actions could not help but seriously compromise the integrity of the court in the eyes of the public and all who had business there. So a smattering of offenses include... Arrest, issuing arrest warrants for people who failed to show up at court hearings during the during the COVID pandemic in March 2020 when the court was closed, publicly lying about doing so after we reported on that, admitting to illegally issuing arrest warrants to force people to pay fines in order to raise money for the court, negotiating plea deals with defendants without city prosecutors present, waiving costs and fees for defendants whose birthdays were in the same month as the court hearing, and then filing false journal entries to cover that up, and sending people to jail on non-jailable offenses in what was basically a debtor's prison. Yeah, the the idea that she falsified records, you could be charged with a crime. Other people have been. I mean, we had uh, Dykes, the former... HR chief at the county plead guilty to or plead no contest, but convicted of falsifying documents. And if she falsified the official court record, why isn't she being charged with a crime? The thing in the story that I that wasn't really explained in detail and you wonder just how it worked is she had a running theme of her courtroom as a strip joint. Yes. Like, how does that work? <laughs> yeah. Like all sorts of crazy things that, you know, the court that, that this panel cited her for, including showing up to court in basically a t-shirt and spandex without her robe on. She was people calling people an an F boy, like put in the, the swear, uh, swear word yeah. there, joked about trading hookups for her staff in exchange for lenient sentences. She, find, she found someone in contempt because the woman rolled her eyes. I mean, this is incredible that this was going on for so long. The investigation started... Um, well, once the investigation started, then it kind of backdated to look at her behavior in 2019. She's been judged since 2012, but it uncovered dozens of instances of misconduct. And her her reasoning or her, I don't want to say excuse, but her defense is that she suffered from depression and anxiety caused by untreated sleep apnea and the effects of menopause. But I mean, the board really didn't buy it. They said it's not like it. it 
th- this is just coming up now when we tell you that there's a problem. Yeah, I, I mean, claiming the mental health thing. Okay, you got mental health problems, but you're still unfit to be a judge and very likely unfit to be a lawyer. It doesn't matter. She, and she was out of control. It's another one of those cases where somebody is completely out of control and it takes way too long to stop the abuse. Can I, can I jump in here? Yeah. So this is so troubling. You know, as a reporter, I I covered some of Pinky Carr's high profile cases during her years as an assistant county prosecutor. She was one of the leads on the case of serial killer Anthony Sowell, which I I think really catapulted her career. And I got to know her fairly well during that time. I even wrote a profile of her and I found her then to be a fascinating, compassionate, hardworking person with a lot of emotional complexity. And she was, she'd wanted to be a lawyer her whole life. She was driven by the sense of justice. And the things that she has done as a judge, the ways she has abused her power are so at odds with that other version that I met a decade ago. How does this happen to a person? I mean, I just, I, I can't, I find it so hard to believe that she was always this person, always capable of becoming this kind of judge. I mean, what has occurred? It's, it's, it's astounding. Menopause. It's so sad. I mean, maybe she's <laughs> no, right. Maybe no, she's no. right. Look, taking offense that somebody rolls their eyes at you, my gosh, if you guys got in trouble every time you rolled That's your eyes true. at me, there'd be an empty newsroom, right? That's why the <laughs> cameras are off. I mean, you can't off. see it all the time. We're not in the newsroom that often. <laughs> Anyway, the the Supreme Court will have to rule on this, but it looks like she will certainly not be a judge, and we'll have to see if she can continue being a lawyer. You're listening to Today in Ohio. We talked in detail a while back about all the radio consolidation going on with IdeaStream, but one element of that that we did not deeply explore is classical music. How is IdeaStream's recent move a potential boon for classical music lovers in Northeast Ohio and for IdeaStream if all of those music lovers come through with a lot of financial support? Lisa, you are our resident public radio expert, having worked part of your career in it. What do you what do you see going on here? Well, and I remember when we talked about this last on the podcast, I was very excited about this development for WCLV. So basically, they're playing a little bit of moving chairs here. So WCPN and WCLV were the two Houston NPR stations. There was a merger with WKSU out of Kent State. So what happens is WCLV right now is sitting at 104.9. Very hard for me on the east side to tune in. It's like sandwiched in between two other frequencies and doesn't come in on bad weather days. So what happens is WCLV will move from 104.9 to 90.3 FM, which used to be WCPN. And it's a much, much stronger signal. It covers 22 counties. It reaches to the east side. Currently, it's the signal is best on the west side and it's kind of, you know, iffy here on the east side. But the interesting thing is, is that when they talk to people at IdeaStream, they said this would, of course, spur more support and donations because they get more listeners. But apparently the, they believe that the core of their listening audience is on the east side, which kind of makes well, sense. Well, of course I it mean, is because, yeah, they're much smarter. I mean, we all know that. We know that from this podcast. Ah, uh, <laughs> <laughs> And as my evenly split at least and as my mother said you know she always says well you know the culture is on the east side of the river anyway you know museums and (laughs) severance hall and so on and so forth but this is going to happen sometime next year they didn't really give a date when the when the the 
frequency switch will take place. But yeah, this is this is a big deal. And they're also going to expand their programming a little bit. You know, they want to feature more uh, non-white, non-European classical music uh, composers and music. They're going to expand their jazz offerings at night. So yeah, this is a very exciting, at least to me and, and for any classical music listener, this is a very exciting development. And we are, of course, joking about the divide on the east and west side. We got everybody <laughs> in Northeast Ohio. You're listening. Was your to producer today in talking Ohio. in your ear, telling you that's a bad move? <laughs> <laughs> what producer? I'm the producer. I know. I know. He's not even mayor yet, but already Justin Bibb has a meeting with President. Well, actually, he's a meeting in the White House. He may not be meeting Joe Biden. What's it for, Layla? Well, he'll be joining the other mayors-elect across the country for this meeting with some of Biden's high-ranking officials to talk about the president's policy priorities for U.S. cities. So they're going to discuss uh, working with the Biden administration on the American Rescue Plan, the recently passed infrastructure bill, Biden's Build Back Better plan, and, and other city-related priorities in his domestic agenda. So we'll know, we know that uh, Housing and Urban Development Secretary Marsha Fudge formerly, you know, the U.S. Uh, representative from Wormsville Heights, she will be there. The Labor Secretary will be there, Director of Intergovernmental Affairs, the National Climate Advisor, the American Rescue Plan Coordinator, and the Infrastructure Implementation Coordinator will all be there. We don't have a complete list of the other mayors-elect who will be attending, but the Cincinnati Inquirer reported that their city's mayor-elect, Aftab Poraval, will also attend. Uh, Bib Bib also recently went to Harvard, the Harvard Kennedy School's Institute of Politics and the United States Conference of Mayors put together this seminar for new mayors uh, and where they talked about managing cities and stoking economic development amid the pandemic and, and addressing climate change and gun violence at the local level. I think that would have been fascinating. I would have loved to go to that. Uh, but it sounds like Bibb is just kind of getting his head in the game, making connections with both national leaders and, and his counterparts in other cities ahead of taking office January 3rd. Yeah, because come January 3rd, he's going to be working his keister off trying to get things done. That's right. So he might as well just travels. enjoy these <laughs> high-level yeah. discussions and, you know, academia. <laughs> yeah, have a good time traveling now because come January 3rd, you're in the hot seat. you got a budget to get through. We'll have to see how it goes. I, I would expect that if all of these people are in the White House, that Joe Biden would make an appearance because these are his folks, right? It's the mayors of, of urban course, centers. Yeah. But they didn't say that. He was not listed as one of the people he'd meet. I was just presuming. (laughs) We'll have to see. There'll probably be a handshake. I'm sure that, you know, Bib will have a a picture of himself shaking hands with with Joe Biden. Well, if he does, then maybe we'll be able to publish it. It's Today in Ohio. (laughs) How did the Ohio Senate make things even worse in their inexplicable bill aimed at blocking school districts from fighting property owners seeking to reduce their taxes? Laura, this is so much like HB6 in my mind. In HB6, we all questioned why the legislature would give First Energy tons of money at the expense of taxpayers. And lo and behold, we eventually found out it was all because of bribery and the worst scandal in the history of the statehouse. This is just like that. There is no reason to do what they're doing. They're stopping the school district 
from raising legitimate questions about efforts to reduce property values for commercial property owners mostly, which would put more taxes on homeowners. Nobody has made an, a, a good explanation for why it's happening. They're racing it through. you got to think there's something really untoward going here. How did they actually make it worse? Yeah, I, I completely agree with you here. I want to know who's behind it because we haven't seen the lobbyists raise their hands and say, this was us. But the, the Republicans say that this version is a compromise, but the school districts are saying this is even worse than the original House Bill 126 and that, you know, like the regular people who send their kids to school are going to be paying a lot more for this. It's incredibly clear the bill caters to big businesses. They want to take away the rights of the districts to challenge their property values, to make sure that their commercial properties are paying their fair share of property taxes, which is the biggest base for funding our schools in Ohio. Originally, this bill required school boards to pass a resolution authorizing their attorneys to fight for increases or against decreases in property values. The district said that's not how it works. Boards usually don't get involved in the challenges. and It's either automatic from their attorneys or they consult with district staff. Now the substitute bill that passed a committee on Wednesday is going to prohibit school districts and everyone except for property owners themselves from filing complaints at the boards of revision, which are the county uh, governmental bodies that decide property values. And they would also require a school district to receive permission from the school board before they file co counter complaints at the boards of revision. So that's more than a resolution. And they have to prove somehow that the property's value is higher than the original assessment. And they also will not be allowed to appeal to the Ohio Board of Tax Appeals if they don't like the decision from the boards of revision. So it is really taking away power from literally the people. Well, and they're not the school districts are not the final arbiters. All no. they are the ones that say, hey, wait a minute, they're, they're bamboozling you. Here's the facts. And then an independent body looks at it and makes the decision. What you're doing now is depriving the independent body of needed information. And there is no justification for it. There's no abuse going on. Nobody has shown that boards of revision are making mistakes. This is just commercial property owners somehow buying off this legislature again. I'm, I'm going to write a letter from the editor column about this this week because I think this is the quintessential case about what happens when media watchdogging dies out. You know, in Northeast Ohio, people know what's going on because we've been all over this. We've talked about it on the podcast. We've had it in The Plain Dealer on Cleveland.com. It's been in our newsletters. But the rest of the state doesn't really have a robust media, and I don't think anybody else is doing the watchdog work. I haven't seen it if they are. And so Ohioans don't know that their legislature is once again working against their interests to take care of some special interest for reasons we don't understand. And I wonder if there is a rural-urban divide here, too, because when we're talking about commercial property properties, I mean, how many of those kind of properties do they have in the rural school districts? I feel like suburban and city school school districts, they're the ones that are paying the biggest price on there, and the, their residents are the ones that will literally have to but foot millions of dollars in value if they lose it in the commercial properties. But, you know, you think of this if it's like a court case. It's denying a, a defense. It's basically saying it's we're only going to hear one side of the story. It, it's really bizarre. Well, I look, it, it really does get at the idea that nobody has justified this. You have yet to hear a single legislator say this is needed because— 
And that means there is no because. It means that somebody has gotten into their pocket or into their head with phony baloney and gotten them on board. If, if there were a legitimate reason for this, they'd be making it. They'd be telling us, no, right. no, no, we need this. We need this. They're not. They're just and ramming this thing through and it's sticking it to the homeowners. Right. The Republican who a Republican who chairs the committee said that property owners have complained that some school districts and their law firms are too aggressive in challenging mm. values like they're just challenging them. They're not making the decision. The boards of the re of revision are the ones making the decision and then they get to appeal it to the Ohio Board of Tax Appeals. Now school districts aren't even allowed to appeal if this passed wouldn't be allowed to appeal it like it is just basically just giving up and saying, hey, property owners, whatever you think you should pay, we're going to let you pay that. Well, and with HB6 as our guide, the, when, when no other explanation comes forward, maybe what we need is the Justice Department to come in and figure out what's going on like they did with HB6. I mean, if it weren't for the Justice Department, First Energy would still be getting billions from us for no reason other than that they bought people off. This is very similar. But it, that seems so specific, right? Like to to one company. Who is the big property owner that we're trying to give millions of dollars to here? I mean, is it just is there some kind of pack of or lobbyists of commercial property? Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think large property owners want to have their way with boards of revision by going in with all sorts of bamboozling and they've got the legislature saying yeah we'll help you out we don't care if it sticks it to the homeowners of ohio right we need to check all of these republican committee people and see who they're getting their money from it's ugly business you're listening to today in ohio what does Ohio's Secretary of State Frank LaRose say the legislature should do with that hurried law they passed that inadvertently exposes elections officials to charges if they help educate voters? Lisa, this we've talked about this before. This is what happens when you cram something into the budget without discussion. Mm -hmm. But here you have the Secretary of State saying, yeah, we got to fix it. Yeah, and I actually had to chuckle at his choice of words. He said that they drafted the language a bit inelegantly. <laughs> Do you think? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and the, the, the origin of this bill, just to recap, um, Mark Zuckerberg, who we all know who he is, his Center for Tech Life and Civic Life gave a $1.1 million grant to Ohio elections you know, officials so they could, you know, help do fair elections and so on and so forth. But... That bill was accepted by Frank LaRose, and the controlling board also gave its blessing to this to this grant. And now all of a sudden they're like, you know, they don't want private money, you know, inter interfering with election processes, which makes sense. But um, the bill totally, you know, made it look like any sort of voter outreach, registration drives, education, you know, would would be illegal. So he said, you know, again, uh, quoting LaRose, he said, I wish the General Assembly had worked with us on the language specifics before they put this in the budget bill. He says there needs to be a lot more clarity on funding versus collaboration. To be clear, LaRose is against private contributions to elections boards, but he says, you know, the collaboration piece really needs to be worked on. So yeah, he's basically telling them, take it out of the budget and work it over.
Well, what they should do is what they should have done to begin with is to make it a separate bill, go through committee hearings, and let people like LaRose point out the pitfalls of what they were doing so that they could pass a bill that would, would pass muster. Instead, they crammed it into the budget at the last minute. Nobody got to talk about it, and now they have a nightmare on their hands. Uh, I hope they listen to LaRose and start over, although this legislature has shown no no penchant for doing the right thing so who knows you're listening to today in ohio how do great lake senators including ohio's sherrod brown want president joe biden to prior prioritize infrastructure spending in the region on three key projects layla you've disappeared from this podcast <laughs> i hope times. so everyone sounded like they one? were underwater so i thought i'd try logging back in so um yeah a number of senators signed on to this letter that senator brown penned with debbie stabenow from, from michigan the first project on their list is modernizing the sioux locks between lake superior and huron which would help ease supply chain issues by by easing cargo ship passage the senators say that that only one one of the four parallel locks in the Sioux Locks facility is big enough to allow passage of vessels that carry 70% of all iron ore between Lake Superior and the Lower Great Lakes. And a second lock that size is needed to ensure the locks remain open for commerce. Then the second project is accelerating work at the Brandon Road Lock and Dam Project to keep invasive Asian carp from entering the lakes from the Mississippi River system. The senators say that that failing to do that would irreparably damage the Great Lakes. And finally, they'd like more help cleaning up toxic pollution at 31 sites across the region. So this letter was also signed by Amy Klobuchar from Minnesota, Tina Smith, um, also from, from Minnesota, Michigan's Gary Peters, Wisconsin's Tammy Baldwin, Pennsylvania's Bob Casey and Dick Durbin from Illinois. This group of senators say that the existing funding trends will only meet a third of the identified federal need in the coming years and that the Great Lakes not only supply drinking water to 48 million people, but they support jobs and commerce and agriculture, transportation and tourism for millions and that they're just critical to the region's way of life. So we'll see if that gets through. You know, look, the Sioux Locks, that is the commerce of the Great Lakes. That's how people get from the Great Lakes to the greater world. Uh, the the Well, can I, that's the Sioux Locks is how you get to Lake Superior. Yeah. Oh, but, uh, oh right. I'm sorry. I've got it backwards. Right. It, it doesn't go to the St. Lawrence Seaway. That goes the other way. Okay, but but my I was okay. Good point. I'm I'm getting my locks wrong. <laughs> she just rocked my, the lake my, for my you, greater Chris. point was is <laughs> is the fish project the the real is that is there a reason to make that a priority? The invasive species idea. So far, they've kept them out. Right, it's worked. But is it inevitable? We've talked about this before that they're going to come, and so. If you spend all that money on that instead of one of the other priorities, is it really wasted money if you are a fatalist about this? And I, I don't know that there's ever been an invasive species that we've successfully blocked. I know, but I the idea of Asian carp in the Great Lakes, it's just mind-bending and so devastating. And I would think that any dollar spent to keep them out, I mean, who knows what we're going to develop in the future, but... Maybe we can outsmart them this time. I mean, I hope so. So if we keep them out long enough to come up with a strategy that defeats them, then it's worth spending the money. I 100% think it's worth spending the money. I mean, Asian carp decimate everything else in all of those other bodies of water. I do not want to let them run so, rampant in the Great Lakes. Well, I know our opinion lead 
Betsy Sullivan is when she listens to this, she'll be nodding in agreement with you, Laura, because she is. Not I was a just wondering. So then, either. Laura, Layla. how do you know how? What is the system of keeping them out? Do they just like, you know, put up a cage and filter filter it out? Like, what's the? How do you keep them out? <laughs> Well, they're doing a lot of different things, and it has to do with that there are currents in the water that are supposed to to kill the fish if they get anywhere. But it's so weird the way that Chicago works. It's the only well, there are some some floodplains in other places, but pretty much Chicago decided to like reverse gravity, right, with their their system with their river, and so we're just trying to undo the damage that was done hundreds of years ago with with the Chicago mm. lock system so and and their river. So I'm I'm hoping we can figure it out and that science can win in this case because. I mean, I, I can't even think about how many how many species in the Great Lakes would be affected by that. And we, we already have our own issues with zebra mussels and quagga mussels and everything else we brought in yeah, invasively. Wow. So let's keep this one out. Well, and so far it's worked. So I, 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 it has worked. They've got the, the technology they're using to keep it out. They went, Every once in a while they find some DNA mm-hmm. in one of the lakes, but they suspect that's because birds were eating it or something. But... Um, we'll have to see. I, I, it's a monumental task to keep them out. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Remember when fracking was a new news story about natural gas resources in Ohio? How much has natural gas production in the state increased over the 10 years since? Laura, this was predicted 10 years ago. It was the big new thing, and we were going to be self-sufficient with our natural gas. But the numbers are pretty staggering. They are. And I do remember when this was first coming to the state, I worked on a big story of it. And I remember being appalled that this five person board that listened to the complaints and decided on fracking operations was made of basically only in industry insiders. And that's when I was a young and naive reporter. And I'm much more used to how the state <laughs> operates <one>. by this <laughs> point. <laughs> but I have I have to say, I haven't seen the explosions of, you know, like the natural gas explosions and the drinking water contamination that I feared would happen. It's been fairly, I mean, it's not happening right here. For most of the, you know, fracking is not happening in Cleveland per se, but we haven't heard any real horror stories from it happening in, in Youngstown or the Mahoney Valley. But the state's natural gas output has increased more than 30 fold from 2010 to 2020. That's according to the oil, Ohio Oil and Gas Association, which I'm pretty sure they pronounce UGA. Uh, <laughs> most of that is from the Utica Shale in the eastern part of the state. That puts us in sixth among states in the amount of marketed production after Texas, Pennsylvania, Louisiana, Oklahoma, and West Virginia. Yeah, I just, the, the percentage increase in the production of it boggles my mind. I, I mean, and it was, this was a big thing during the John Kasich years, remember? And we were mm-hmm. all talking about crackers and, you know, we had all of the worries about the fracking fluid and how it was poisoning the ground. We haven't had. Yeah, they didn't have to tell you what's in the fracking fluid. I still, I think they still don't have to they tell don't, you what's in no. it. Yeah, but we haven't, but we haven't had any kind of stories about that in years now. I mean, it was all you could talk about back then. And they were doing those pressure, underground pressure where they're injecting all this ugly stuff. Um, is it just we're waiting for it to seep into all our, our drinking water before it arises again as a news story? God, I hope I hope that's not the case. Maybe they did learn some of their lessons in some of those earlier fracking projects and they learned from their mistakes. But you're right. I, we haven't heard a lot about it going on in Ohio. So fingers crossed everything's safe. Yeah, it was interesting to read the story about how much it's increased when we haven't really had it in our consciousness. I guess the pandemic drove everything out of our consciousness. Right. And they expect another 6% increase between 2022 and 2025. So it's, it's not done growing yet. Okay, you're listening to Today in Ohio. 
Our company's hosting holiday gatherings this year. Lisa, our newsroom did last week, so we're on the side, I guess, of being a little risky. But it was fascinating as we did this story that the reporter ran into companies, didn't want to talk about it because they were worried they'd be vilified for having a gathering. Right. And, you know, and this is, you know, our really our first and we can't even call it post COVID. Let's call it post vaccination holiday. And yeah, it depends on the company you talk to. It also depends on the venues that host these kind of events. Some venues in Cleveland are fully booked and some are booked into February. But then there are some companies that all of us did have parties on the schedule and decided to cancel as as the, uh, you know, the Delta variant continues to wreak havoc here in Northeast Ohio. And as you said, um, your reporters, you know, tried to talk to some businesses. A lot of them declined to comment because they, you know, they don't want to look like they're partying when bad things are going on. And I get that. And they don't want to look like they're unsafe or or put their, you know, employees at risk in any sort of way. Just a few examples. Sam McNulty, he owns the Market Garden Brewery and about 14 other event spaces. He said most of them are booked up, but he spent a lot of time during the pandemic renovating his spaces, mostly doing H. HVAC upgrades with UV light filters. Uh, The Winking Lizard says, well, they're having a few events for their regular customers, but their banquet rooms are remaining closed, but they cite staffing issues as their main problem there. Orlando Baking down there in the Opportunity Court, they say there's going to be no party for their employees again this year. There's still social distancing in the workplace and masking. Uh, The Music Box Supper Club is going to host 10 events. That's down from about 20 to 30 in a normal holiday season. And they did suffer from some recent cancellations. So yeah, like you said, it it depends on who you talk to. Some are in a partying mood and want their employees to cut loose and others are a little more cautious. We probably had about half of the people we invited show up. And I think it came down to those who were triple boosted and didn't have vulnerable people at home felt more safe about it but it was very much a personal choice as to whether people came or not the place was packed we were at brew dog which is huge and it was still loaded with lots of people and enjoying themselves i think it comes down to personal comfort i think it's sad that the companies were afraid to talk to us because they'd be vilified for acknowledging they had a gathering we're acknowledging we had our gathering Mm -hmm. vilify us (laughs) You're listening to Today in Ohio, and that's the end of this podcast. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Layla. Thank you, Lisa. Thanks to everybody who listens. 